Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Wednesday, the 18th of August. And in today's briefing, we interview an Afghan man in Kabul facing a very grim reality. I have been in hiding. I'm scared for my life. I'm scared about the safety of my team, my family and my own soul. That interview in the second half of today's episode. First to the big news of the day, starting with an update on the situation in Afghanistan with Katrina Blouse. Hey, Tom. Hey, everyone. Well, the Taliban have given a press conference in Afghanistan promising that women won't be oppressed, that the country won't be a safe haven for terrorists. It's their first address since taking power. It is very understandable the international community is expressing worries, but I reassure all internationals that we will not be allowing the soil of Afghanistan to be used against anybody. So that's the Taliban spokesperson, Zabihullah Majahid. Uh, he's speaking at that press conference, um, asking the world to trust them. So a very strange and uh, concerning turn of events there. Reportedly, evacuation flights have resumed at Kabul's airport after those chaotic scenes of the last few days. But Scott Morrison's spoken, uh, saying that Australia won't be able to rescue all the Afghanistan interpreters and staff who helped us, um, saying we won't be able to find all of them. Yeah, so those Taliban promises that we just heard, they come after Afghans in Australia have voiced some serious concerns about how their relatives and friends in the country may be treated already. We have heard some unconfirmed reports that women have begun being rounded up, that that women are, are really fleeing because they do fear for their safety. They're hiding any evidence that they have, you know, university degrees or jobs, which they have been allowed to have over the last uh, decade or so. And ADF personnel are on their way to Afghanistan to try and bring back Australians and people who've been working with us. Well, Defence Force troops will be deployed to Western New South Wales for a rapid vaccination mission as cases there climb to 117 and they spread as far west as Broken Hill. Authorities say two-thirds of the cases are Indigenous people and the ABC is reporting that there will be 25 ADF personnel arriving in Dubbo today helping with vaccinations but also enforcing the lockdown measures. Yeah, so Dubbo reported 16 new cases yesterday. So some real concern about the spread in the regions and particularly, as you mentioned, Tom, among First Nations Mm. people. And all of New Zealand were locked down for at least three days after a mystery COVID case was uncovered in Auckland. The Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said yesterday their concerns the case may be the contagious Delta variant, uh, so that's why they've acted so quickly. We've seen the dire consequences of taking too long to act in other countries, not least our neighbours. Yeah, so the city of Auckland's lockdown will last for a week. Uh, the man in his 50s who tested positive was active around the community for several days, so I guess there'll be an anxious wait there. Yeah, so the lockdown's um, what they're calling level four restrictions, meaning schools, offices and all businesses are shut, only essential services are operating. Um, they've also paused vaccinations for 48 hours to prevent vaccine hubs becoming hotspots. I I had been wondering, Katrina, as we go through this bizarre situation here in New South Wales, Mm. how much longer this beautiful, heavenly period of freedom in New Zealand would last. Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, we were all kind of looking over there, um, feeling quite envious. (laughs) But uh, yeah, and and it's interesting too, that vaccine hub's being shut down Mm. um, for the first time. So that, that just goes to show how seriously they are taking this. 
And big business news, the mining giant BHP uh, will sell its oil and gas operations to Woodside and the merger of those two oil and gas operations will form one of the world's top 10 producers. Yeah, BHP has oil and gas fields in Australia, the Gulf of Mexico and across the Caribbean. And this move is part of BHP's divestment from fossil fuels. And they've said they want to focus on future-facing commodities like iron ore, copper and nickel, as well as potash. Yeah, they'll also end their London stock market listing and now will be solely listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. So really interesting moves from BHP. This is what they promised to do and they're doing it, which is to move away from fossil fuels and also refocus on their Australian operation. All right, right after this message from our sponsor, an interview from Kabul. All right, let's go to Kabul now. Uh, Sharif Safi is a youth worker. Uh, he founded an organisation called the Kabul Peace Forum, which fosters young artists in Afghanistan. And over the weekend, he tweeted, to the world, to the UN, to everyone, you abandoned us. You left us alone in this war, which isn't ours. We screamed and shouted, we warned you of this day, but you didn't listen to us. You will be judged. Sharif, what concerns you most about what you've seen in Kabul over the last few days? The last few days in Kabul have been quite scary. However, the Taliban look calm for the time being, but still their appearance very unexpectedly all over the streets of Kabul. People feel very disappointed. They feel devastated. They feel scared. Um, it was very unexpected, I mean, when they brought down our flag uh, in several places, people were crying, uh, including myself. I have been crying over the past few days for, for my country, for my people, and for my own self. And where do you live? What have you seen? Um, we've been seeing mostly the pictures from the airport of thousands of Afghan people trying to flee. What's it like on the streets where you are? I live in Kabul. It's one hour drive from downtown Kabul. So far, the Taliban are calm. Uh, however, the first day when they entered the Kabul city, there were gunfires, there were people panicking, running everywhere to, to their homes. It's a reality that, that the people of Kabul, they, they don't want Taliban to be ruling them. And the very tragic uh, scenes, the very tragic images you might have seen over mm. the internet from Kabul airport, that shows how... Kabul people, how the people of Afghanistan, they rather, they prefer die, but to not live under the rule of the Taliban. The Taliban have said that they want the world to trust them, that they aren't seeking revenge, that they won't be seizing private property. Do you trust them? Do you think they've changed at all? Personally, no. I don't believe there is a version two of Taliban. I don't believe they have changed. However, they might be, you know, saying this to, to the media to seek for international recognition or, or to seek their, their support. But personally, as a person uh, who has also lived uh, um, his childhood during their dark regime, I still remember how cruel this group was back then. And even now, I don't think they're changed because when they took over Herat province, it's tomorrow. When girls went uh, to attend their classes at Herat University, they were not allowed to enter their, their university. Mm. So it means that they're not changed. They're still 
against the rights of women. They still want to suppress freedom of expression, freedom of uh, media, and also anything that gives women and girls more freedom. So what's your message to the international community? What do you think of the way America and its allies, including us, Australia, have handled this withdrawal? Well, personally, uh, Tom, um, I feel abandoned. Afghans feel abandoned. This withdrawal, this was very hasty, a very hasty withdrawal and very irresponsible withdrawal. I'm, I'm Personally, I feel very disappointed for the international community and, and, and the world. Everyone just turned a blind eye to us. Well, as an activist, we have been shouting, we have been screaming to the world to listen to us, but they didn't. We have been warning them of this day, but, but they didn't listen to us. Now, the consequences of these, this hasty uh, international forces for travel, this is us, this is ordinary Afghans that we are living with. Uh, my message for the international community would be that we are, and at this stage, we are already out of the best scenario. So now mm. we have to choose between bad scenario and worst scenario. And the worst scenario would be Taliban taking the full power. There should be a sort of power sharing so that from previous government, from republic side, there should be people in the, in the political power. We don't want Taliban to be implementing their totalitarianism ideas over us. What do you make of Joe Biden's justification that he didn't want to sacrifice any more American lives if the Afghan military and political leaders weren't prepared to fight for themselves? Well, Tom, with all due respect for the people of America, for President Biden, but I think this is a very selfish remark uh, because... You know, ignoring the sacrifices that Afghans, especially our Afghan security forces, have been uh, paying over the past two decades, that that has been huge. There has been like hundreds of thousands of uh, our Afghan security forces casualties, hundreds of thousands injured. So, so if they weren't fighting, then who did the fighting over the past two decades? Look at the numbers. Uh, the casualties from U.S. forces around to 2,500 or maybe less. But the casualties from Afghan side, it crosses even more than hundreds of thousands. So who has been fighting? Even now, well, there are a lot of questions. There are a lot, a lot of whys in my mind. Mm. But you might you might have seen the the uh, footages over social media that Afghan soldiers are resisting to put their weapon. They want to fight and they say that we are not gonna, you know, put our weapons and give our weapons to Punjabis, indicating the Taliban. I think that the only reason that all this takeover by Taliban happened in in a very short period of time, like in one week, it was the moral problem. Mm. The moral of our security forces were broken once U.S. Uh, announced that they're going to, you know, withdraw by any means. There is a timeline. There is a deadline for that. And when they took the air support from our security, security forces, that was the moment that our security forces and, and provinces started to fall to the Taliban. So you founded an organization called the Kabul Peace Forum. Tell us about the work you were doing. What were you hoping to achieve? And do you think you'll be able to keep doing any of that work? 
I don't think I would be able to continue that work, at least for the time being, because honestly, I've been in hiding. I, I'm, I'm, I'm scared for my life. I'm scared about the safety of my team, my family, and my own self. Because in Kabul Peace Forum, we try to create a dialogue, uh, an environment that everyone, even if someone supports the Taliban, they would have the chance to talk there. But now, I'm afraid that we, we won't have that chance, we won't have that opportunity. Because given the experience that we have from Taliban regime, uh, they're going to suppress freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and everyone who's going to oppose to their narratives and their interests, they will persecute them. So I don't think I will be able to do that. Do you feel like you're taking a risk by speaking to us, Western media? I do. But what is real is that I'm already at risk. I've been receiving threats from from this group before they, t- they took over Kabul. They would send me messages over several social media platforms. They were calling me American puppet because of what I do, because I own a CSO and, and I worked with foreigners. So they called me an American puppet. Mm. They used to, you know, message me that I should be killed, I should be punished because of what I'm doing. And it's all because because of my works, because of my articles. Um, that's not something that, that pleased the Taliban. So how do you respond to those kind of threats? Before these Taliban takeover of Kabul, I was concerned, I was afraid, but but honestly not that much because I felt safe, relatively safe in Kabul. But now that they have taken over Kabul, I feel sort of concerned. I feel uh, afraid for my life. That's why I have been in hiding. I, I have tr- tried to stay low. But your question, you, you might have this question that why, why I attended this interview, even though that I know that mm. I, I'm receiving threats. Because I really believe that the world, the international community, they have to know the stories of Afghans. They have to know the on-the-ground reality. They have to know that Afghans want which sort and which which, which kind of a government structure. And we certainly do not want Taliban. Do you wish that the West never came into Afghanistan 20 years ago? To be honest, I would not wish for their absence because... When they came, that was when the development started after after collapse of Taliban uh, in Afghanistan. But what makes me disappointed is about their withdrawal. So you work two decades, you put your your money, your human resources, your time, your everything in a country, and then after two decades, you just you just you know leave everything like there was nothing. So. What I'm asking myself and also my international friends who, who, who work with, with the government, that what was it this 20 years for if you're just leaving them all behind like this? As I said at the beginning, I'm really disappointed now because over the past few years, at least for me over the past four or five years, I've been working hard you know, in non-profit and, and, and uh, whatever I have been doing for, for a brighter Afghanistan. But now, if you look at this race of Kabul, you think that the country has moved at least 
for tears backwards. Mm. So instead of going forward, we are now going backwards. And that's what, what breaks my heart. That was Sharif Safi with a, a very sobering portrayal of what's happening in Kabul, Afghanistan right now. Listener.